Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 98 of the Social Media and Politics Podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, political scientist at Loon University. Remember, you can connect with the show on Twitter by following us at SMNP Podcast or visit us on the web at socialmediaandpolitics.org. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you had a great and productive start to the Roaring Twenties. And for our first episode in this new decade, we're actually going to be looking back at 2019 and in particular, the 2019 European Parliament elections. Now, these elections are interesting because they happen every five years. They're a huge democratic exercise with the EU covering about 500 million people. But voter turnout in the European elections has consistently fallen since 1979 until 2019, where voter turnout crossed the 50% threshold to clock in at 50.62%. So just to give a bit of context for our non-EU listeners, the European Parliament elections happen every five years, and turnout has historically been low for a couple of reasons. One is the fact that the EU is a very complex institution. It's very hard to understand. And it's supranational, meaning it's one step above national governments, where most European citizens are used to turning when they want to influence policy. So that's one problem. And the second problem is that we know from academic studies that reporting about the EU in national media tends to be very low. And when it is reported about, it tends to be quite negative. And the third reason that isn't talked about so often is the fact that the EU has enlarged and expanded into Central and Eastern Europe somewhat affects those turnout numbers because historically, countries in Central and Eastern Europe like Slovakia, Czech Republic, uh, Bulgaria, don't tend to vote as high as Western European countries. So when you expand the voter pool and you have countries that vote at a lower rate than other countries, which is not true across the board, but in general seems to hold, then you have a decline in voter turnout when you just look at the aggregate numbers. So if you take equal parts complex institution, low media saliency, and expanded voter pool, shake and strain over ice, you get a low voter turnout cocktail, which doesn't taste very good to EU institutions. So the 2019 European elections are an interesting case to discuss because mobilization went up, and there's many reasons for that. Could be the rising concern about climate change and Greta Thunberg, could be the fact that Brexit politicized the EU across the continent. But we're going to look in this episode at the European Parliament's communication campaign around the election. And my guest today is Stephen Clark. He is the director for liaison offices at the European Parliament. And those liaison offices are contact points in every member state that are tasked with the mission of engaging citizens to promote debate and create awareness about European democracy. They work with local media to inform local populations about what the European Parliament is doing. And they engage with various stakeholders in order to, again, just promote what the Parliament is doing and foster a vibrant European democracy. And so Steve is the director for that organization in Brussels and has been active in working in many European Parliament campaigns from 2009, 2014, and 2019. So we're going to talk about what was different this time, including the this time I'm voting slogan, but also the mobilization strategies that the parliament was engaged in. 
That includes social media, but in particular, this election was focused on mobilizing local networks through what Steve calls the ground game. So we'll get into all that. And what's kind of cool is I interviewed Steve before the elections for the Europecom podcast. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to compare the kind of before and after election discussion. And what's also super cool is we recorded this podcast in the studio of the European Parliament in Strasbourg. I was down there giving a workshop on podcasting. So I'll put a picture of that up on Facebook and Twitter. But without further ado, let me turn it over to Stephen Clark. Again, he is the Director for Liaison Offices at the European Parliament. Steve, thanks for taking the time out and welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. So I'm curious to get your take on how mobilization efforts worked out in the 2019 EU elections. But first, why don't you give the listeners a brief introduction into your role at the Parliament and the type of work you've been doing ahead of the 2019 election campaign? Okay. My job title is, as you said, uh, Director for the Liaison Offices. Those are the offices that Parliament has in every member state, every capital, and in some of the larger member states, we have a second one too. So I'm sort of looking after their work on a day-to-day basis. And that was, in fact, my role ahead of the elections as well. I actually had a, a dual hat on in the election period because I was coordinating the campaign overall for all of the services of, of DGCOM. So, you know, based on the strategy we had, I was kind of in charge of the, the so-called implementation team, and we were sort of working on the election together at the same time as I was dealing with the offices. Mm. And, you know, I think the the kind of top line from the from the 2019 European elections was there was a 7% increase in voter turnout across Europe, bringing voter turnout to the highest level in two decades. So before we dive into the communication around the campaign, what's the feeling like here at the parliament about these numbers? Was the mobilization campaign considered a success? Definitely it was, yeah. Um, since the since the elections, we've received plaudits, I would say, um, for the campaign. And now, I wouldn't go so far as to claim credit for everything that happened by any means. But I think we managed to plug into something that was going on and encourage it through our mobilization efforts, through our efforts with partners and so on. So this, uh, this 51% or 50.7%, I think it was in the end, is extraordinary. For us, it was extraordinary. We got over that magic sort of 50% number. This is after 20 years. Well, no, in fact, the turnout has always decreased ever since the first elections in 1979. So this was a sort of a turnaround. This was the highest for 20 years. Uh, and for that reason, I think, yes, the campaign was considered a success, but the elections were considered a success. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the the key takeaways from the parliament's campaign? I mean, especially in terms of mobilization, what worked well and what seemed to maybe not work out so well? Well, we had this idea that we needed to mobilize people, and that was through looking what was going on in election campaigns and other campaigns, indeed, around Europe and the world in the years preceding the election. So we tried to learn some lessons. And one of the lessons we thought we learned was that, firstly, you need to engage people emotionally with the campaign somehow. That was a crucial part of it, and that's what we saw going on elsewhere. And we had to get people activated and and mobilized. It didn't need to be us as a sort of officials, as an institution passing over a message, but other people buying into that message and taking it over and actually themselves transmitting it to their audiences, their friends, their networks, and so on. So the real achievement of this campaign and the real lesson is that that mobilization works. It's the right way to go. And that's why we're so keen on carrying it on in the future as well. It's not something we've done before. This was entirely new. And for us, it was a huge learning curve to get into this whole idea of campaigning with a community of supporters and volunteers. So we had to learn a lot, and we didn't always get everything right from the very beginning. And when you say what went well, well, it went well generally in terms of mobilization, but it went well in different ways in different places. So 
the model, the sort of classic model we had of, of individuals signing on to the This Time I'm Voting website and becoming part of the campaign and possibly then volunteering to do more, uh, that model worked extremely well in some places. In other places, it was less aligned with the local political culture. And in those places, we found that perhaps other systems work better, still mobilization systems, but for example, with partner organizations or youth organizations, people who were interested, wanted to get mobilized, wanted to be part of it, but maybe were reluctant to sort of just put their email into onto a website, which is kind of what we were asking people to do. So we had to trim and adapt a little bit as we went through the campaign depending on local circumstances. Right. And I think, um, you know, I've seen you present on this uh, a couple times before. And one of the key innovations for 2019, as you put it, is um, the introduction or the mobilization of the ground game. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a key element here in terms of partnering with organizations. So can you kind of describe what that ground game was and maybe the importance of these partner organizations, you know, who kind of know the local context, kind right. of their role in the, in the initiative? Yeah, the ground game, that term, which we did use internally, encompassed different things. Firstly, we set up this mobilization activation website called thistimeimvoting.eu, and we had a variant of that for every language. And that's the place that we encourage people to go. So all our communications always included the URL for that website. And it was a very straightforward website with a possibility of sign up. You could sign up as a supporter. And once you were signed as a supporter, then you could agree to do other things or, or offer your services perhaps as a, we ask people, would you like to do more online? Would you like to do more offline? Would you be interested in doing both perhaps? So that was one possibility we gave. And in fact, a lot of people came through that way, through that channel. There was also an events function. So you could find events going on near you if you're a supporter online. So we had a lot of people throughout the campaign, it tended to be about 10% of the overall total of people who signed on to the website also said, yes, we'd like to do more. Hmm. So we we actually started then contacting these people. We physically got in touch with them. We invited them to meetings. And that was the way we started to develop a real active community of people doing real things on the ground. And that generated an extraordinary amount of activity. As I say, it wasn't the only way. This was one technique. The other technique was really by building up partner networks. Now, we were doing that centrally in Brussels through a lot of European organizations that had affiliates at national level. So they might be NGOs, they might be sort of interest groups of one sort or another, from business to the unions to environment interest groups to associations for gender equality or disabled rights, whatever it might be. All of these people who have their own agenda, but were also interested in sharing our message of democratic participation. So that was the other source of activation of people willing to help us and take part in this campaign. And then I would say, actually, on top of that, there was another layer of people who maybe we were only very fleetingly in touch with, but who were also mobilized, probably self-mobilized, to get involved in the campaign. So we saw a lot of spontaneous activity, which wasn't part of our sort of, we hadn't generated it directly in any way, but it was going on. And that's why I say it wasn't all about us. It was about a general thing going on in Europe at that time, mm. which produced this this extraordinary level of mobilization we saw in the end. So it came from different places. Definitely. And I have a, a whole bunch of follow-up questions here. And, and one of them has to do with, as you said, people kind of seemingly organically coming into the, the campaign or wanting to get involved. And I wonder, you know, to what extent do you think 
because we have the European Parliament elections every five years, that between 2014 and 2019, I think the biggest European-wide event would be Brexit and the discussions around that. And I'm wondering if you think that this type of politicization, I guess, of the EU got people activated to get involved this time around. Absolutely. And I mean, look back to, it's actually over a decade that stuff has been going on. Uh, the financial crisis hit in 2008. That's actually two elections ago, not just one. Uh, so, you know, we've had a series of high-level events. We've had the financial crisis, as I said. There's been the, the whole issue of migration across the Mediterranean and from mm. the east and so on. Um, that has been obviously very much to the fore in the political agenda. And on top of that, you have Brexit, which is kind of the emblematic moment of difficulty in the European Union. So all of these things had led people to to do two things. There was a lot of questioning of Europe and a lot of quite hard questioning of Europe going on about the whole model and is it working and so on. And this gave rise, you might say, to some non-traditional or Eurosceptic forces in Europe. At the same time, what it meant is that people were discussing political issues in terms of the European level so that there was, I, I suppose, an understanding that a lot of the problems that we have or questions that we face are European level questions. And that was something that I think particularly since 2014 had become very apparent. So, you know, it it sort of cut both ways. There was this kind of difficult atmosphere, but there was also an atmosphere where it was about Europe. And I think this led to mobilization of all kinds of people. Uh, And before the elections, you heard a lot of political leaders talking about these elections as being extremely important. Certainly what we saw in our media monitoring is that the European elections were cropping up a lot more in sort of public discourse generally than before. We had sort of double the number of mentions in the the press and the media that we were monitoring compared with the previous occasion. Mm. So there was kind of the interest was out there. And that was, as it were, the political background to these elections. And another reason that we thought, um, you know, for us, our involvement has to be of a different nature this time. We can't just do that information campaign in the traditional way about the date of the elections, but also be rather more engaged in the whole process and sort of talking about this is an important democratic moment. This is some time where we all have to make ourselves heard. And that's what we did. Definitely. And I still want to pick up on a couple of things. But as we're looking at the the kind of context in the, as you said, past decade, you know, we, we know that campaigns tend to drive innovation, especially in in institutions and and communication. So um, can you contextualize the past two elections in terms of what were some of the major communication uh, innovations in 2009 and then in 2014 and maybe how that played into what the parliament was doing in 2019? Yeah, it's interesting to look back because I've been involved in the uh, elections broadly and quite closely since the 2009 elections. Uh, And at that time, I was working in our web communication team. And those were the elections where we came for the first time with social media platforms. So it was a big moment in our sort of uh, institutional history, as it were, as communicators, that those elections offered us the opportunity to open a Facebook page, uh, go onto Twitter. There was Flickr. There was, uh, I can't remember, there was something else. It was all very novel at the time. And uh, in terms of the institutional, the European institutions, we were the pioneers at that point. And... It was under the pressure of the elections and needing to do something new, something that was relevant to the electorate. And we saw that, that you know, we needed to do that and we got the go ahead to do it. We had a mandate to sort of get involved in 
Web 3.0, I think it was called in, in some, <laughs> some official note at the time. Um, so Web 3.0 came and we were very, very happy to have 50,000 followers on Facebook on election day in 2009, but it was the beginning of something quite important. Then in 2014, I think what happened there is that we, for the first time, did a really integrated campaign with a branding. We worked on the phases of the campaign. It was quite a rich campaign in terms of production of content and so on. And that was uh, Act, Think, Act, React? The, the, yes, Act, React, Impact was Act, the baseline Act. we were using at that time, which again was, uh, was novel. It was something new that we did it that way. Uh, it was difficult to translate, I have to say, that phrase. Um, but the main thing I would say looking back uh, that election was that's when we matured as a social media operator. And that's when, of course, we needed to be promoting our content online through on Facebook, Google, and so on. And we, we sort of learned the trade, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and if you look at, at where we were spending our money in that campaign, we were certainly much more of it was going in that direction than had previously been the case. And of course, there were lots of techniques to use, which, uh, again, at the time, we were sort of very... Um, proud of what we'd achieved in that area. And in 2019, it was completely a, sort of in the mainstream culture of our organization. So it's almost as if that was taken for granted that we were doing a lot of social media promotion um, and we knew how to do it. We were basically doing it ourselves, but we shouldn't forget that that was actually progress compared with previous times. What we, I'd say for 2019, we've already mentioned the mobilization part of it, which is, was entirely new, this ground game part of it. But I'd have to say that perhaps also there, the media side of things, we had developed a lot. Another thing we did in 2019 was to boost the uh, our sort of firepower in terms of press people and community managers, not only in the center, in, in our sort of central operation in Brussels, but also in all of the offices. So we took a line that we would give the offices much more sort of firepower locally to deal with their local environments, both on the media side and on the social media side. This was firepower we didn't have the last time around. We focus much more on distribution, on getting the word out, getting the message out, on mobilizing people, much less on content and producing stuff ourselves. So if you look back to 2014, which I did recently to, to make the comparison, I was interested to see that when I was talking about that campaign, I was presenting a lot of things that we did. And we did some great stuff. Um, but I think one of the lessons we learned as well is, you know, you can produce and produce, but you've got to distribute. And if you don't do that successfully, then it doesn't really matter. So one of the oddities about 2019 and over the course of the campaign is we had very little to show of our own. Mm. Um, and people sometimes came to us and said, well, you know, where's the visuals and where's the slogan and where's this and where's that? And we're saying, well, actually, what we're doing is something else this time. But in the end, we were, I think we were vindicated in that approach. And there were, of course, products. Yeah. And to what extent does that, um, would you say decentralization would be an appropriate to kind of devolve the the messaging out to the national offices? Uh, we did that, yeah, sure. Um, decentralization was, was very much one of our buzzwords at the beginning. We, again, from the experience last time, we'd perhaps over-centralized and the, some of our local people had struggled to use the material mm. that we'd, we were providing them with centrally. So this time we said, we'll give them as much more scope to do things their ways because, of course, you know, the tonality, the cultural background, the, the exact form of the messaging, the images you use, all of these things play to a local context. And we'd learned that. 
and we gave them much more scope. Obviously, there had to be a central core of this campaign, but I think everyone who you might speak to would confirm that you know, the way we're, they were operating in Lithuania was nothing like the way we we're operating in Portugal. Just to give you an idea, you know, that's what exactly what I wanted to ask you about is kind of how valuable. I mean, I'm assuming quite valuable, but um, is the value of giving more autonomy to the national offices and local offices that ability to translate a European message or a mobilization message into the local context and local norms of uh, what they think might work? Yeah, I mean, that's really important. And uh, you know, we have this slogan in the EU that united in diversity and. I, in my current job as well, I get to see the diversity much more than, than many do as I, as I sort of go from office to office and see how it works where they are. And, um, you know, we were, we were working with the same tools and the offices, they needed the support and the content that was coming from the headquarters, as it were. You know, we were, we were producing, for example, the website about what Europe does for me, which was a centrally produced thing, but full of local content so that it could be used as appropriate where people were. And uh, I think that was vital. And it's also vital if you're in a mobilization context, because if you're working with local volunteers, they're local, right? So, you know, if you're in, I don't know, Ljubljana or somewhere, and you want to get some volunteers together and go out in the streets and do something, then they want to talk about what's happening in Ljubljana or in Slovenia. And they're not that bothered about what's happening in Cyprus, for example, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we've talked about it a bit on the, the show before is um, – the kind of idea of politics being more and more like a movement rather than a kind of formalized campaign. And I mm-hmm. think when you're when you're kind of sourcing local content, I mean, of course, you're, you're kind of directing it, but also um, having it being so local, um, that seems to kind of mimic to an extent a grassroots movement. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can discuss the idea of building a movement with the parliament's campaign, because the European Parliament doesn't have a necessarily political platform. It doesn't take a stance on left or right. or right. So how does the Parliament go about building um, a kind of movement without having a political platform to kind of rally people behind? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question for us. And uh, well, we wanted to build a movement. And I've, I've kind of explained the reasons why. We saw this happening in other people's campaigns. We knew that there was an issue out there about trust in institutions and experts I mean, it's out there in the culture now that people don't trust experts anymore. They don't listen to politicians or institutions. Who do they listen to? They listen to people like them, people they can identify with. There's this whole sort of trust question that goes with communication. So we we knew that to get a message across, if it was just us, the guys in suits, as it were, speaking person, <laughs> uh, you know, standing up in front of an audience, that's all very well, but, you know, it's heavily discounted in, in communication terms. But if you can get friends talking to friends, then that works much better. So this movement idea, this idea that you get together behind the cause, and that's about the emotional engagement. So we're not a, an organization that has a candidate. You know, we're not the Trump campaign or the Obama campaign or whatever it might be, something like that. What we are is an institution and we, we have an idea. We have a, a set of values that we can stand for. And this was interesting because in this campaign, there was an explicit decision which was taken by our authorities in the mandate that we could in this campaign, stand up for Europe, stand up for a fundamental set of values that we as Europeans and institutionally believe in, and that is democracy, representation, participation, those kind of things. So we could go out and get people excited about that. And in fact, I think there was some excitement in there. And we were talking earlier about the, the political context. 
there you had a, a context because of what's been going on in Europe and the, the stakes being visibly higher than in the past. There were people concerned, interested about the future of Europe and the, the future of democracy. And these were themes that actually resonated as much as, you know, classical political themes such as climate change or unemployment or economic growth or whatever it might be. So I think we had something to work with. And that, if there's a movement, it was around that idea of participation. And that was our sort of rallying cry that we could use. And that, in fact, that other people were also using themselves. So there was this kind of, as it were, conjuncture of lots of things coming together. Mm. Now, we have to be really careful institutionally, of course, to be nonpartisan. So uh, there's, a, there's always going to be delicate balancing act here. We can't take positions that are party political in any way. But I think when it comes to these basic values of democracy and participation, then we're, we're on safe ground. We can talk about that and, and, and stand up for that. Definitely. But then it makes me wonder, um, you know, we're talking about this, this ground game and, and getting um, local organizations, getting them involved in the campaign, having citizens sign up through a website. How do you kind of strike the balance where if you start having this decentralization, how can you make sure that it maintains a kind of nonpartisan campaign versus, you know, if you have local organizations getting involved, kind of campaigning for Europe, how do you make sure that they do it in a way that's nonpartisan? Or do you allow them to pick up their call? Well, we, took a, we took the view here that uh, if whoever was willing to share our message of this time I'm voting, adopt that uh, and behind it, the whole the notion of the importance of participating in this process. Then, if that organisation had another agenda, then that's fine. And in fact, you know, obviously we, we did wonder: is someone going to try and like appropriate this this idea this time I'm voting for themselves for their own agenda? It didn't happen because I think the the appeal of this idea was widespread enough for for no one to be able to dominate it, and. That meant in the end that it was shared by, you know, we had people supporting this time I'm voting from the business community. So we saw like corporate headquarters in Germany illuminated with the, you know, yellow stars on blue and calls for this time I'm voting to NGOs and environmental organizations also supporting the idea this time I'm voting. Communicators, there were people working with us, you know, in the artistic and cultural world. We had film directors stepping up and saying they signed a manifesto, it's important to vote. Obviously, they had their reasons for saying this time I'm voting for, and we didn't mind that at all. In fact, we even encouraged it. We had cards which said, this time I'm voting for, and left a blank space that people could sort of pose with. Um, it worked, and there was not this appropriation anywhere. So that was great. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it goes in the future. But I know it was. It worked out for us. And kind of sticking on this theme, but maybe a bit more um, sinister. Maybe uh, it's, it's worth reminding our listeners that at the time, um, the 2019 European elections were seen as a big test for a lot of these social media platforms around disinformation. And then I think it. At least as far as I know, there weren't any major instances of disinformation. But I know that there were some mechanisms in place. So can you describe a bit kind of what you and your team were looking at ahead of the elections in terms of disinformation and what the situation ultimately was there? Yeah, I mean, ahead of the elections, like everybody else, we were concerned about uh, disinformation, fake news, call it whatever you like. And there was an effort made 
the level of different European institutions and indeed European governments to try and find approaches to tackling the problem. We have a, actually, we had a unit whose mandate it was to try and identify misinformation. They worked closely with people in the commission, in the council, and often in fact in some, in some governments to identify things to rebut and uh, disprove myth bust as early as possible in the process. But I don't think we, um, we would claim to have sort of found the silver bullet that deals with this problem. What we tried to do really was to create a narrative, a powerful narrative on the other side behind the idea of voting and participation and what was really happening in the European Parliament and so on. I have to say that at the end of the day, we didn't feel we had a major problem with fake news or people trying to disrupt the campaign as such. Now, there may have been instance, but uh, this for us on this occasion, it was the thing that didn't happen um, in, in my view. Now, I, I could be wrong. I could have missed a few things here and there, but it was not the campaign which was heavily disrupted by outside forces or the forces of disinformation one way or another. I mean, that's what I can say about it, really. It's still, it still, obviously, it remains a concern into the future as well. And there are lots of things being done, which I'm not myself too familiar with, to deal with the problem, both in terms of response, but also prevention. One thing that did affect us very, very much in the whole campaign was the policies and reactions of the big social media companies, so mm -hmm. big tech companies. Google and Facebook in particular were under a lot of pressure politically, uh, globally, on the whole question of, of disinformation. And they were actually taking action to address the problem during the campaign period. And of course, uh, there were, I think Facebook, for example, introduced uh, more transparency into its, uh, into its political ads so you could see where things were coming from more easily than it was previously the case, which is all to the good. They did, however, at the very end of the campaign, introduce a ban on pan-European political advertising. And unfortunately, we found ourselves classified as that, which meant operating as a pan-European organization became extremely difficult for us. And that was something we had to deal with at the time. We found workarounds and we dealt, uh, I have to say, we, we worked a lot with the, the companies themselves to try and deal with that issue and managed to communicate. I think there was maybe a lack of understanding of those companies of how the European Union works. Mm -hmm. um, and that's often, a, in many ways, that's a very indifferent scenario. That's a, an issue we find ourselves dealing with. Um, big American companies often don't understand the nuances of the European Union, how it functions. So we were up against that a little bit. But I suppose that for us, in terms of our experience of the whole thing, that was the, on that side of things, it was the, the big one. Mm -hmm. I have a couple questions about um, digital organizing, and I want to get into that. But first, uh, something that we talked about in our sort of recap right after the European Parliament elections was the video, the video oh, yes. used to um, <clears throat> broadcast out across media and social media. And was it 2014 the first time there was a kind of video with the campaign? No, we'd, we'd actually done this before. Right back in 2004, we did our first sort of TV okay. ad All right. uh, for the campaign. But uh, this was this was a, a different level, I would say, this time around. Yeah, definitely. And I know it was met with both positive and more skeptical voices. If, if the listeners don't remember, it was a, um, um, a video about childbirth. And maybe, Steve, you want to explain it a little bit better <laughs> than, yeah. than I did. And what was the, the kind of reaction to that? Well, there was the main thing is there was a reaction. So as I said earlier on, I think we realized that we didn't want to do the usual thing of sort of 
appealing to people to go and vote with a date and it was for reasons of you know political motivation or civic duty or whatever it might be we needed a more um, emotional appeal and we felt uh, that we'd been trying to produce that emotional appeal throughout the campaign and we looked at uh, at how to sort of try and get this message across of Europe and our hope about the future the, the sense of slight jeopardy which was to do with the 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 situation in Europe, well, this year, right now, I mean, it's still it's still the case that we're in a in a sort of a turning point. The world is a less certain place than in the past, and yet you can still commit to the future. And of course, one of the ways that you can commit to the future most radically is to have a child. And this is where the metaphor came from, if you like, that this idea that you know you commit to this this having this child the child is born there's this incredible moment and then you go look forward to the future there is hope there is a future and everything and uh, we worked on this one with a very um, I think a very good agency it was a Danish agency who are well known for very emotionally powerful uh, videos it was a radical decision to do a, a long form video for the internet Three minutes is very long. Yeah, what was the decision behind that? Because well, because this was it, it was a family of products. There was actually there was the long form video. There was derived. There was a TV ad and there was a radio ad. All came out of the same concept. Um, but we felt we wanted to have an impact. We wanted people to notice this campaign, and indeed they did. So this video was launched and it elicited strong reactions, as you said. Now they weren't always favorable reactions, but it didn't leave people indifferent. Firstly, it was emotionally extremely powerful. I've frequently showed this video in rooms to people, and it was it would be very unusual for everybody in the house to be dry-eyed at the end of the, the showing. There was always someone who found it very, very moving, and I would include myself in that category when I first saw it. There were others who thought this was um, a strange place for the European Parliament to go, and so there was a surprise effect. I mean, really, the European Parliament did that, you know, which is also very useful, very helpful for us because it got people talking about it and it got people talking about the message. And, you know, there were these famous 135 million views online of this of this video. But I think also, and equally as important, was the fact that the media discussed it. It got picked up. We had several people from our different offices on breakfast TV showing the video, talking about mm. it. We had a lot of press coverage of people sort of saying, whoa, what's this, you know? Um, but ultimately, I think, the general feeling broadly across the media was, wow, this is a powerful, moving statement about democracy and Europe, and we like it. And in fact, we got a, in the end, I think I would say the, it was a very positive reaction we got, and people remember it. I mean, in our research since the campaign, we see very high levels of recall of this video. People, yeah, oh, the baby video, yes, I remember that. And <laughs> uh, yeah, it didn't leave people indifferent. That's the main point. Uh, it was a truly very, very high-quality product as well. If you look at the, the technique, the way it was filmed and so on. Yeah, because the actors were, were – they, were, they weren't actors. They it weren't was, actors. It was real they, childbirth. This, this was the, the director actually went and sort of asked people in hospitals, <laughs> would you mind? And people, uh, a surprising degree, you might say, said, okay, that's fine, when it was explained what it was about. Um, we actually – one of the families that was involved came to see us afterwards and uh, they, they came to Strasbourg and they met some journalists and explained how their experience had been. Uh, and it was, it was actually a very beautiful occasion. They weren't sort of Euro geek people who were sort of, you know, on the barricades. They said, well, yeah, we thought this was a good thing to do and it does matter that people uh, participate. And that is exactly 
what we kind of hope to see uh, about this campaign generally, that regular people, not just the people who always think about Europe, but other people say, yeah, this is important. We should go for it. Hmm. And how do you even... I mean, there's there's obviously the the view counts on Facebook, but and you said you mentioned you did some polls of the recall. I'm, sorry, I'm very curious about this video, by the way. Yeah. Um, how do you actually go about breaking down the success of the video apart from social media metrics? Yeah, the social media metrics are sort of they're hard figures, and you can analyze them. You can see where it was played and where it was popular, and which particular demographics and all that kind of thing. Obviously, this was this particular thing was appealed. To people who are a little older than perhaps a lot of the other things we were doing, because, I mean, if you're a parent, this was obviously a more powerful uh, view than if you're a non-parent. I think that's fair, fair to say. A lot of people have said that to me since. It's then, well, recall, I think, is about 27% of everybody we asked whether or not they voted, whether or not they remembered anything to do with the campaign. It was, in some places, it was much higher than that. It was getting up to 50% recall of this video. It may be cultural. It may depend on... Uh, how much exposure we managed to get in the media of a particular country. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we have a big media dossier on this as well. So alongside the social media stats, then you've got your, you know, your media analysis, which is quantitative and qualitative. So, we, you know, how often was it shown? They had the TV ad version, which was a 30-second version, uh, which by dint of being shorter was perhaps less emotionally powerful because it didn't have the same sort of buildup of the, the sort of the emotional tension. But it nevertheless was seen by a huge number of people. And we reckon we had about, I don't know, we had 4 million euros worth of, of advertising time, which we got for free because many public service TV stations across Europe would take it as a sort of a public service ad to support voting. On that, rules are very different from place to place. And that may explain some of the difference in recall. Mm. In some countries like where you live, Michael, in Sweden, uh, the rules don't allow that sort of thing to be shown as a public service ad at all. Indeed, we've never been able to get anything in Sweden. In Germany, on the other hand, they do accept that as, as public service and we get a lot of exposure. So it's, it's interesting how that plays as well. Yeah. So interesting with the, the difference when you start getting into like media markets and, and yeah. regulations and, and things. But I mean, looking back, we have the video, but also the um, this time on voting campaign, the introduction of this ground game and kind of decentralization of campaigning. Um, and as you, as you mentioned, each it seems to me anyways that each five years, each campaign, there's more experience that's built up. And obviously the climates are different both politically and in terms of the media uh, environment as well. So, you know, how do you see it in terms of the campaign's effects on the parliament's communication going forward? So from this campaign, what do you think will be taken into the 2024 elections if we can start right, talking right. about it so early? Yeah. Please. <laughs> um, one of the things for internally that we, we learned here, and this was actually a bit of a revolution for us, is that we didn't go with the full service agency for this campaign, which is kind of the traditional way that it was always done um, and was done in 2014 that way. Now, it's, it's certainly not a complaint about the, the service we had. We had a very good agency, but uh, we felt that there was a lot of this that we could take on ourselves without the need to to brief an agency to get them to understand our, our world, the whole linguistic side of things with us is always quite a big obstacle for, um, for commercial agencies. So we decided actually to internalize. We decided we would handle it ourselves. Uh, we would you know, develop the strategy, we develop the imagery, we develop the, the language and so on. And we would turn to agencies for 
very specialist services. Now, I mentioned the video. This was one where this was beyond our means to do something like that. And for production, like printing and various other things like that, we would turn to an agency. But really, we handle this in-house. So we feel that we have developed as a, as a communications team and outfit considerably over the last few years. We've professionalized a lot of things that we do. We have, over time, I think, in our recruitment as well, really honed in on people with communication skills, including in a technical sense. And that gives us quite a lot of ability looking forward to run campaigns in a way that we haven't done before. Um, and in fact, become more of a campaigning organization. That, I mean, that would, that would also be a change that I would identify as of having happened with this campaign is we were in information and communication services. Now we also got into this idea of being campaigners and mobilizing other people. That's quite a difference. As I said, for us, it was a learning curve of, of, you know, how do you do that? How do you talk to, you know, how do you talk to people who share your, your values and your ideas? But, you know, what are all the techniques around that? So we've learned a lot of that. We've learned a lot of the, the stuff to do with graphics and messaging and so on. And I think that places us in a good position, not only for the next elections, but also to talk about the big subjects for the European Parliament between the elections. So we have things coming up now. There's, you know, the political agenda is in place. The European Parliament will be heavily involved in climate change policy, will be heavily involved in, obviously, sort of the budgetary side of things, what Europe spends and how it spends it. Um, all of those things, we need to talk to people about those as well. And we felt that during the, the election campaign, we built up networks, if you like, we built up assets in communication terms that we cannot now just simply neglect mm -hmm. or say, you know, thanks very much, see you next time in 2004, 24, sorry. Now, our challenge now, our real task is to make that happen, um, to keep the impetus going. And to do that, what we've done is we've gone to our volunteers and our partners and asked them the question saying, okay, what now? What do you want to do? What do you need from us to do it? You know, you got behind the election campaign. Now we're into the regular business of, a, of the parliament, the regular business of Europe. How do you want to be involved? How can we help you? And we're getting some really interesting feedback from them on that. We've done it online. We've done it offline. Uh, and people say to us, yes, we want to carry on. Yes, we believe in this, in this whole idea, this whole project. What they tend to ask us for is good, solid content, localized stuff, which they can talk to their communities, networks about, and say, you know, Europe is not a distant thing. The European Parliament is not remote. It's something that you can be involved with. The MEPs are elected. They actually live here, you know, all over Europe. You can talk to them. You can get involved with them. You can bring them to events. So that's how we want to go from now on. Now, in 2024, heaven knows, I mean, my experience of each of the three elections where I've been involved closely in the campaigns is they've been very different. Even the background you know, the political environment has been very different on each occasion. Who knows what's going to be the big thing in 2024 and how the whole idea of campaigning and communication will have developed. I mean, obviously we have ideas, but we have to, we have to be able to adapt as well to whatever happens between now and then. Definitely. But I think, you know, um, just as kind of an observer of these campaigns, I think, as you mentioned in like 2014, you would uh, starting to professionalize the social media. And then mm -hmm. 2019, you have it down, and then you're going into campaigning. And so I think maybe 2024, you'll have the um, the kind of professionalization of that, and it will be uh, it'll be interesting to watch and see where um, and see where things go. Yeah, I think we have we have ideas about what we still need to work on a bit more. 
And indeed, there are kind of audiences and sectors of society where I think even now uh, we need to work harder to get to, to talk to, to get involved with. And they may be more the, out in the regions, in the rural areas where perhaps we're, we're not talking about very fancy digital techniques, uh, but we may be talking about slightly more old-fashioned techniques uh, and deploying good old-style face-to-face a bit more. But that can only happen if we're working with a network that's big enough of people to have that kind of reach. And I think one thing I'm optimistic about is that having made contact with so many people and communities that we do finally have a level of reach across the territory, if you like, of the European Union that we can then start getting out into those areas where perhaps for us it was it was just too difficult always mm-hmm. in the past. Maybe that's where we're going in 2024. Interesting. So not not branching more into the digital, but also into well, the- uh... In my experience, these things go together. And that's one of the, one of the paradoxes is almost like the hollowing out of the traditional- campaign with the billboards and the and the, the posters and the TV ads and that kind of thing in between the sort of the super digital highly sophisticated highly targeted kind of stuff that you might do online and then the sort of the really face to face feet on the ground knocking on doors kind of in the local communities kind of communication on the other and those two actually mutually reinforce to an interesting degree hmm. And um, as will it be to watch what happens in 2024? I know you maybe you're not um, so uh, so ready for the whole drive of the campaign, but well, uh, believe it or not, people do keep bringing it up, and uh, I, I'm, maybe someone else can be the coordinator next time round. But uh, I'll be there and. Uh, I'll be just as fascinated as you are to see what happens. Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks so much for uh, taking the time out and sharing your uh, insights with us. No problem at all. Thanks very much to you. I've just been speaking with Stephen Clark, Director for Liaison Offices at the European Parliament. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Next time, I'll be speaking with Dr. Alexander Stewart from the University of Houston, where we'll be talking about his study on information gerrymandering in social networks, which was recently published in Nature. But until then, I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Alma. See you next time.